Kevin Killian's up next. That was great. Thank you, Travis. Um, I had a. Um, I was going to say all those same things, and now I'm I'm stymied. <laughs> I go on first. At least you get the novelty. But uh, you really did a great job. Thank you. Um, I wanted to read this one piece that I wrote about. Uh, let's see, potato salad. <laughs> but it's so dark in here, I don't know if I'll have trouble seeing it. It's in little tiny writing because I wrote it for Amazon.com. And I have like a little attachment that will magnify it. Yes. Oh, is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> okay, it's called Reed German Potato Salad, can 15 ounce, pack of 12. It's under grocery on Amazon.com. <laughs> and I read this about a year ago, but because it's called Holiday Seasonal Salad, I think it's time to read it. <laughs> Now that the holidays are here, my wife and I attend many parties at church functions and social media events in San Francisco. <laughs> Oddly enough, the one food you see at both types of affairs is the so-called German potato salad. Recently, we were at a party celebrating the arrival of young Twitter folks to our block. <laughs> It's nice to see young people digging into the foods we had long ago as children in another time, pre-digital culture, when basically you went to the deli and asked for one of two different sorts of potato salad. <laughs> Come on, magnifying glass. Come on back. <laughs> Do you need more light, too? Yeah, maybe that was it. I have a little, like, flashlight thing. Oh, no, I can read it over here. Okay. Where's my microphone, though? Can you hear me? Yeah. We can hear you. Just yeah, like, okay. Yeah, I that. Um, Does that work? Or? Yeah, no. It, okay. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. Thank you, tech people. <laughs> two, there were two different kinds of potato salad. None of you will remember these days, but one was German. Or some wise old neighbors made it themselves, adding crumbling bacon and diced pickle chips to the gold, their golden hoard of spuds. I asked the corporate hostess who had made this delicious potato salad we were wolfing down, and she replied, Alice Waters from Chez Panisse. <laughs> it was worthy of Chez Panisse, but as it turned out, later that evening, the hostess sought me out and said she had been misinformed, and the Chez Panisse potato salad had been reserved for Twitter VIPs, <laughs> while we latecomers made do with fancy reed potato, German potato salad. 
Nice of her to let me know. She was all apologetic and so forth, but Twitter had nothing to be ashamed of. In the back room of the kitchen, we found empty cans of reed stacked high in the dumpster, easily seen even by fading eyes due to the distinctive red, yellow, and black packaging, like the flag of Germany. <laughs> so simple, it is like the red, white, and blue of the USA. The caterers had spiked up the reed can salad with some extra potatoes, parsley, bacon, and some sagacious slices of fresh strawberry as a splash of garnish. <laughs> I compliment the reed people for making a product that not only baby boomers and the foreign born can enjoy. <laughs> but something that new grads and new Twitter hires take to the reckless attention abandoning Elon of their generation. My wife, who knows about such things, whispered that, in addition, it is probably cheaper than ordering from Berkeley's Chez Panisse, where California cuisine was born. So if you had to pay off a student loan, it was probably going to be read for you. At least until your startup took off in a big way. And all of a sudden, the Rolling Stones were playing your company's Christmas party. <laughs> you wrote that a year ago? Yeah, November How 19, timely for now, right? You should reissue it out there. Well, Twitter is still moving in. Yeah, Dodie and I live on the block next to the Twitter headquarters. Um, but this one, I want Paul. Paul, you can be in this. All right. Okay. This is like a little film script that I wrote. And um, it's the life of pages. It's just a, just a little bit here. It's the life of Denton Welch. Do any of you know this British writer, Denton Welch? Some of you do. Okay. But he was like in pre-war London, uh, in England. He lived in the country and wrote these beautiful stories and started publishing them little by little. And on his first trip to London, he asked to meet the, the woman he considered the greatest writer in the world, Dame Edith Sitwell. And her patronage helped him to get you know, further success. Tragically, Denton died when he was in a bike accident. He had a bike accident and lingered on for a while, but he died when he was 30, maybe, something like that. Anyhow, I'm going to play Dame Edith Sitwell, and Paul is going to play Denton Welch on his first visit to my house. And we filmed this scene years ago, and I dressed up as Dame Edith Sitwell, and Joe Westmoreland played Denton Welch, young and innocent. But we'll leave that to your hands. So it's just like a like a soliloquy for me right now. When I met Denton Welch, I was 61. He was 21. And the sun fell over London like a clumsy lover. The streets were gold. And he, he brought me a story I could read by myself. I think when I wrote this, I thought 61 would be like an age of like wandering mental <laughs> He wore a gold tooth in his mouth. Did you know that? There's a knock on the door, and I open the door. I plucked it out. I put it in my ear. Is this the London home of Dame Edith Sitwell? <laughs> yes, and come in. 
A strong breeze could blow you away. <laughs> Many have. <laughs> I'm frail, but often the precious lie down with the weak. These flowers are for you. So young and sweet. Oh, Denton, you wrote, in youth is pleasure. But how would I know? <laughs> I, who have never been young, <laughs> when Pavel Chelechev gave me the boot. That was my character's heartbreak, that she was in love with Pavel Chelechev. He was in love with somebody else. A piece of my heart turned to flint, and I turned to... Astaroth. <laughs> Welch, unusual name. Are you related to Raquel Welch by any chance? <laughs> I can't keep a straight face. <laughs> when I met Raquel Welch, she was 21. I was 81. And London was a shock of purple iris wet with rain in a toothpick jar. <laughs> She came to L Street to star in the Hammer remake of, oh, oh, what was the name of that picture? One Million Years B.C.? Yes. Did she ask you for your memories? <laughs> Everyone comes to see Edith Sitwell when they come to London. So I said to Raquel, Look, I still have the gold tooth in my ear, the tooth that your Uncle Denton gave me. So I hear the words of the dead through a sheath of gold. I hear you talking to me, Denton, even though you've been dead a hundred years or more. But I'm here. Oh, but just for a minute. Thank you. Thank you for. It was a really sad story to be to grow up and grow old and old and remember all the beautiful, talented people you knew who had died before you. This is a tra my translation of Mauer May's poem, Sea Breeze, call it in English. My skin's all peeling. Ugh. My tats melt from my forearms into the illegible wax sperm spilled on shower floor. Let's you and me follow the gulls, drunker than Circe's daughters, deep into the vault of violet sky. Hey, sea breeze, nothing, not even the gated community of Sea Ranch can stop us from jumping off this ruinous cliff into the dark. Quick, Laura. Blow out the candles. What's that white unicorn-esque maquette in your palm? You feed it honey from your glass menagerie? Just quit this life. Little canoe tied down with twizzle sticks. Swivel your bow towards exotic everywhere. Kiss today goodbye and point me towards tomorrow. Cover my departing footprints with hankies in the sand, and maybe the oars of life dipping into the liffy, where only mother's name for life's adversities. 
A change is as good as a rest, she used to moan. But nothing ever changes bar the sailor boy's birthstone. I changed it a little bit from the French version. This is Devotion. This is from my new book that's coming out in February, Tweaky Village. And I wrote this for John Sakis when he had the competition where we all had to write poems when the Giants won the playoffs. Jason, you must have written something. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, years of agony knowing from behind a s- screen of studio flack how much money Zito was pocketing and how little, how insanely little he gave us back. Half a season of Tim acting dumb off of his game, yet somewhere in there a new brand, a new beard energy puffed itself afloat, like the inside of a lotus or an artichoke, unfolding, unmasking, until by Atlanta, well, what happened, boys? And you know what Willie May said, 1961. I don't compare them. I just catch them. Let's see what else I have in this stack. They got asked, I got asked, and a lot of you probably did too, do you have any poems about cyborg? Cyborg poems? I was like, what? Of course not. <laughs> and, he was so flattering. I said, I'll, "I'll write one. I'll write my a whole series just for you." <laughs> and we had just been to see Elysium. <laughs> Did anybody see that with Jodie Foster, Matt Damon? Okay, yeah. <sighs> it's called Cyborg Events. Matt Damon, <laughs> flat on his back, a needle in the skin between his thumb and hand, and when he awakes. A metal apparatus like a cross has been thrust into and out of his nervous system in Elysium. The (laughs) aspirational luxury satellite all plebes hope to be reaching one day. He's Max, speaks Spanish with an Italian name, apparently the only white man in Los Angeles in 2054. (laughs) The populace, unruly, is looking to get out. When I got my arms and legs embedded, I could crush walnuts with my nuts. I was a rampage on legs. (laughs) A tripod shoots out of my butt should I choose to sit. (laughs) Thus, the cyborg events of my... These, the cyborg events of my lifetime, were rubbed into my cortex like lanolin long ago, in childhood. This is Matt Damon's childhood. There's constant flashbacks to his life in an orphanage. When I knew one girl and one nun, and I wrote their names on my skin with my nail. F plus M. That was like, her name is like Fauna or something. And his name's Max. He writes like F and M. And then a halo over their names for the nun's Blessed present. F plus M. <laughs> with a halo over our names. I guess it's female and male, and the halo I meant as forever. <laughs> Funny how I died, but the cyborg events came true, Jack. 
everyone becomes a citizen and Obamacare chambers flew down to earth in the belly of the big white bird. It was on a treaty we agreed with the human figments that became Jodie Foster in Extremis. Sort of a Jacobian period for the star that I once loved the best. I mean, wait till you see Jodie Foster in this picture. But I could do anything. And yet the power of correction remained with the state. Um, this one is also like a cyborg poem, but this was at the same moment that Kaiwi's new record came out, Skirt. Have any of you heard this? She was like, oops, and then my skirt fell down. Oops, and then my skirt fell down. Skirt. In the future, our face falls off like our skirt. <laughs> Underneath the dermis and the epidermis of wide, flat, interstitial space takes the shape of a mask, a catcher's mask. If there was a catcher in Venice, Italy. In fact, if Holden Caulfield had a secret robot-type watcher trailing him, spying on his every move, it would be me behind that hickory tree in Central Park, that hickory wind that's calling me home. Where do I go? I can't stalk this boy forever. He'll think I'm a phony. What do I do? Am I even a person? I mimic the humans who walk the streets in New York in their business suits, their khakis, their polo shirts, their human hands clutching bats or briefcases. My hand is made from cow's teeth. The knuckles all bark. Hickory wind. As I pass my palm to my nose, between my cow's teeth, I see Holden pass now. His adorable face smug with disdain, erasing all the graffiti I put up to enrage him. I was like, fuck that little sister of his. In the factory, we didn't get us's. No, sir. Nothing was small. There was just a zillion copies of ourselves the teeth and metal ligatures thrown away every which way, like a potter gone mad. I'd quit this job, but he's so expressive. <laughs> I think if I'm learning something, watching him shove his fists into the pockets of his, his jeans, strange garments of blue with funny cuffs and what look like robot studs in the stiff cloth. <laughs> oh, I had to get out of the cyborg world, so I decided to write a Sestina. <laughs> and you all know what a Sestina is here. This is a poet group. Uh, I kind of lost the plot about what a Sestina was, you know, in my 20s. So this one is called Get Out of My Way. That's also by Kylie. A Sestina. <laughs> At a park... <laughs> At a party game, we used to ask, like Kylie Minogue, 
what's the worst thing that could happen to you? I don't play that game no more. I'm lucky, I guess. But is there such a thing as occurrence without agency? Inside the belly of the Sestina, I survived just like Elaine Stritch. The life inside the Sestina of Scotch. Bringing these keywords back again and Scotch at the close of the Sestina, I'll have a Scotch. She sang about all the things she survived, did Elaine Stritch. The ladies who lunched, J. Edgar and Herbert Hoover, and Scotch, <laughs> plugged in my bowels a silicon of pewter. Rub it, it will stretch. What's the worst thing? What's the worst thing that could happen to Scotch? To be trapped inside the Sestina with the Memphis Blues, a stretch. It's a if if so, I could be the poster boy for. Scotch, now I've showed you what I've made of, what I've made of, stretch. Now I've showed you what I've made of, scotch, stretch. I hope that you know Elaine Stretch, the great musical actress. This one I was reading, Brian Boyd's Life of Vladimir Nabokov, The American Years. So, you know, Nabokov wrote this book, and it was called Ben Sinister, I think. But his original title for it was Game to Gunmetal. Like, Game to Gunmetal. And it turned out it was like a book of the encyclopedia that was on his desk when he was writing it. You know, it would be like an order, alphabetical order, so it would be like A to Apple, and then G, Game to Gunmetal. <laughs> And they, they're like, wow, that would have been such a great title. <laughs> so I decided to adopt the style of Nabokov. I guess I thought I could write in any style. <laughs> <laughs> Game to gunmetal. The volume came unwilling from the stolid row of Britannicas with a satisfying blump. And Boyd took a hazy pleasure inserting a clipped finger between two of its folk old pages to open the book on his father's pre-Czarist desk, 14th edition, volume 10. He turned his eyes toward the negotiating sunset. Tall French windows revealed a row of plain trees, cunningly planted to obscure the ash-filled valley. A softening pried his mandible from his maxilla, almost to eye level with the page. Game! he was disappointed to find, had nothing in any of its columns on call to duty for modern warfare, and not even a squib of on insouciant Mario Kart 64, not from 1990, which had so much eased his difficult childhood with its pretty pink leaves, purple bats, green propellers, a twirl to dreamy synthesizer beat. No. Game apparently meant the pleasure some men find in trapping rabbits and elks in forest and blowing their brains out, carting them home strapped to boxy Range Rovers. It seemed that the book was well titled, for there must be few applications of game 
to which gunmetal would not come as a spankingly well-chosen a positive. continue with another French translation. Any French people here? Oh, good. <laughs> but in the other room, actually. Or other room is I think French. he's asleep. <laughs> Maybe he's asleep. Well, this is called Eyes on the Prize. This is my translation of the one poem that Rambeau and Verlaine wrote together, and it was their, what they called uh, um, Sonnet à Truth de Cool, and that was this, their sonnet to the asshole. Um, this is my English version. Shadowed, unshadowed, purple and pink like the Elizabethan ruffle or the truffle of the lower Ardennes and papery thin, like a sussurous cloud. It is your asshole in cahoots. Better yet, hand in glove with the white mountains of your ass cheeks. It lies between them in the shadow of a precipice. Like that Kylie song. <laughs> Cuddled between them like the baby in the bed between mom and dad, moist as baby. Childlike, cloudlike, unformed, the doctors frown. The ceiling looms, looking down at the anus. That violet-eyed cries against the hot wind. The onion-scented Sirocco. Liz Taylor crying when the Mexican boys eat her cousin, who's filleting them. This is in that movie, suddenly last summer. They just swallow him up, spitting out the gristle of his teeth, his gristle, his ammonia, his tears, to lose themselves when the darkness calls them the shadow of the American dream. A man should know his own ass, doctor. Mon cool will always expect something more than what it gets. Mon cool will expire of rage like the newborn screaming in the desert. And we will be reviled by history for what we failed to do on the commune. Above the vultures creak and pivot, their eyes on the prize. As mon cool brule, au few. The shutter snaps once, twice, in western desert air, then falls silent, sated. I wrote this for this exhibition in New York of uh, David Warnerovich's papers, and among them was the, they had the, the mask of Rambo's face, where he used it for an art project, and he, you know, Xeroxed the picture of Rambo, and he made it, cut it out, made it into a little face, and had like a little stick at the bottom, and he had his friends hold it up, and he shot them in different kind of casual New York late 70s, things like strap holding at a, on a subway. Uh, one, one is just sitting there with like a needle on his arm. Many, many variations on that. 
So I wrote that poem to hang next to that rainbow mask. This poem is called, also called Eyes on the Prize, and I wrote this about this one song. It's another French song. It's called San Francisco. Um, where's that French guy? Hey, French guy! This, they, is, this was a popular song in France. <laughs> and it was by this guy who was called Maxime Laforestier, and he was like the French version of James Taylor. He came to San Francisco and stayed here for like a month, went back to San, to France and wrote this song, like Fire and Rain, about San Francisco. <laughs> and apparently generations of Frenchmen listen to that song and think San Francisco is really still like that. So, um, this is just my English version, of course, but San Francisco, Blue Horse, Blue House, Backed into the Hill. Um, that's how it's, it begins. Um, uh, there was a Maison Bleu, Adasse à la Colline. That means like backed up into the hill. <laughs> Funny beauties make music, act out. Liam and Ginger, Ron and Chuck, Bob, Lisa, et Luke. These are like the couples that lived here when I first moved to San Francisco in 1980. They were in the vanguard as slowly I learned how to make it. An ono social being tongue-tied, a nascent top. When I came here, blue house grew out from seven hills. In my future, AIDS and language poetry, social justice, a job that lasted like Bartleby to free my mind with my eyes on the prize to pay the rent. La Gendarmeard, swimming in the fog. Maxime Laforestier, you were here for just a month and you like totally got it. <laughs> San Francisco, up like a match, hiding your face in your armpit, alone in a corporate town, but I had no idea. I just saw the cable car and I was like, Daddy, buy me that. And, and Dodie, Dodie Bellamy, the femme divine, upon whose coattails I hooked my stars together, like one of those old couples we used to see, Jess and Duncan, George and Mary Oppen, Simone and Etel, Lisa and Luke, Sylvia, Attendez-moi. I'm sure I have just a few more. This one is called Table of the Elements, and I wrote this for a show here in San Francisco at the at Chrissy Field of Mark DeSuvero's sculptures. I don't know if you've been to Chrissy Field and seen these, but they're pretty enormous, like as big as this building, I bet. Well, bigger. Bigger. Bigger, yeah. They're so big, they don't fit in inside a museum or anything, so they have to put them outdoors. So if you go down the Golden Gate Bridge and you can see there's like eight of them up for it and it's to celebrate his 80th birthday. And I was thinking, steel, what is steel made of? Anyhow, I didn't really know. Somebody suggested I consult the table of the elements. <laughs> <laughs> And the other part of DeSuvero's life that was so romantic was that he was, a, he was an Italian family. 
they lived in Shanghai, in the Jewish ghetto of Shanghai. And when World War II approached, approached and the fascists were taking over everywhere, they were summoned back to Italy by Mussolini. But something told them it wasn't going to be a good move for Jewish family to go to. So instead, they somehow wound up coming to San Francisco. The Golden Gate Bridge had just been built. So they sailed in on, under that Golden Gate Bridge and, and to Suvaro, who was then like, a, I don't know how old, like 10 or something like that, saw the bridge for the first time. It was the elements he got right. The strangeness of the new land. It's funny things called trees. It's fuzzy things called trees. You know, I was thinking of that poem by William Carlos Williams where Williams brings his grandmother, drives his grandmother from their house to the home. And she's like, her mind's wandering. And she looks in and she goes, what are those fuzzy things called? And it was tree, you know, the trees and the lawn of the home. The fuzzy things called trees, the spice in the air, the thick avocado paste of novelty, and simultaneously a war to win. Does it ever leave you? That feeling of having been taken hostage by the left, hostage by the right, sworn to vassalage by your secret tutor, to the undying borders of the nation state. Now dry off the elements of tin, mercury, iron, oxygen, gold. I was sleeping on a country lawn, my eyes wet with dew, my trousers rolled, soaked, my thighs cold, and a tall animal, a procheth, licketh my face clean of soil. It is the salt of tears for your country, said the wise platonic antelope. Down red clay track he raced like a son of a bitch. This is part two. Okay, so you with me so far? <laughs> yeah. Like Don Draper, like Anna Madrigal in Tales of the City, I dreamed of my youth as an awkward teen raised up in a brothel. That was spoilers ahead for those who haven't made it up to Mad Men that far. My brother dead, the women I loved lying to me. Their silk dresses, their pale pink star-bought slips. But the elements they got right. In my dreams they slept and tossed as up to the star-torn skies we were winning a war against dads. I played piano in the parlor to entertain my dad. This was the typical chore of boy growing up in the brothel, playing piano while the older men waited in the living room for the girls to be free. I played piano in the parlor to entertain my dad as he cracked his knuckles against his muscles. Did that happen, I cried when I awoke. Or was it but the historical materiality of the Cold War that impressed me like Play-Doh? In this poem, I managed to confuse Play-Doh with Silly Putty. <laughs> it's 
So this Play-Doh has the characteristics of both. What would you call them? Substances. <laughs> Was it but the historical materiality of the Cold War that impressed me like Play-Doh? I'm sorry, Kevin, my father said. You mean Plato? Do you not? The name of the Salminio character in Rebel Without a Cause? <laughs> <laughs> that Plato lied to you? Plato, who wanted James Dean and Natalie Wood as his parents? The philosopher king with the shadows in his cave? Fuck no, I mean Plato, Dad! <laughs> That yellow gooey clay with salty scent that coats one's nostrils like like living, that just peels off, that you can put on newspaper and it mirrors the news. <laughs> Crying the salt of tears for my country. You could throw it and it would stick to the wall like when pasta is done, said my dad. Because in dreams, the dead come and animate your bones once again. Down race the wise antelope down the red track. Brother dear, I cried, only to be told. A, the antelope is not a deer. B, nor is she my brother. Down she raced like a mad thing. Lips a froth with delight, and I stood beside myself. In my representation, there were two of me, like Plato's concept of me and my shadow, and someday I'll be a perfected version of that sorry ass thing I see in my mirror, the one that's speculating and gesticulating with bony fingers and my, my Adam's apple swallowing up and down. The sign of the liar in panic in the platonic mix of flour, water, boric acid. See, these were the elements of Plato. The platonic mix of flour, water, boric acid, mineral oil, and salt, my birthright, my dream right, my clay, yellow clay. I've got one more. This also is, has a lot about plants in it. And I wrote this, this early this summer for the Gay Pride Celebration in San Francisco. They wanted to have a poem that would be like, that would tower over the block at, at Fourth and Market. Some of you may have seen this poem. It's the biggest poem ever put up in San Francisco. And, but they didn't want it to be kind of, they wanted it to be gay. They said it has to be gay in the line, first line, but it can't be anything about sex or... <laughs> it can't be X-rated, it can't be R-rated. It would be better if you just avoided the whole thing. Uh, you know. So, yeah. So yes, we came to the... Not Kylie, this time. Stevie Wonder, and I decided, I said, well, anybody would do this. You'd write about plants. That's safe. So I called it The Secret Life of Plants. 
before we knew we were gay. <laughs> before we were boys or girls or gender and fucks continual, a kaleidoscope. The plants knew deep in their underground. From out of the earth, they soared, knowing our fates, whose lips my lips have hungered for. The plants could tell. The sycamores, strawberry vines, the poppies, the native plants of San Francisco. When earth meets, embraces air and rain, a love is born, a terrible love, a love even earthworms understand. Reach for my hand in our backyard, in the shadow of the sequoia, hear it whisper our names in the ragged dawn of our city. Thank you both. That was wonderful, both of you. Thank you so much.